Hey, what's up, what's up? Welcome to 2021 and welcome to season four premiere of The One Inch Barrier. I am your host, Juan Carlos Ojano. I hope you're all staying safe and staying healthy and staying at home. Woo. So just a quick reminder that the Patreon page is up and we're there are exciting things to come. And this Sunday, something's going to drop. Be sure to watch that. Check that out. Yeah, I'm falling apart right now. So for this premiere, we're going to talk about the film that won Best Foreign Language Film at the 62nd Academy Awards. That film is Cinema Paradiso, or in its original title, Nuovo Cinema Paradiso, written and directed by Giuseppe Tornatore. So this was Italy's 8th win and 22nd nomination. This film is about a director, film director named Salvatore De Vita who receives the news of the death of a man named Alfredo from his town. So he then reminisces his past as a young boy named Toto, whose love for going to the Cinema Paradiso is a big part of his childhood, as well as his friendship with longtime projectionist named Alfredo. Uh, that's Cinema Paradiso. So for our guest for this episode, he is from the United States. He is the founder and editor of the film Experience. And on a very personal note... He is one of my big film influences, just saying that. So I'm so happy to have him on this show. Please welcome Nathaniel Rogers. Hi. Hello. Thanks for having me on. Season four premiere. Woohoo. Yeah, I've been dreaming of like, where can I have you on this podcast? And it just felt right for this one. Uh, yeah, like like I said a while ago, I just want to thank you, not for just for coming, but really, um, my heart's flooding right now, but, you know. Well, that's in keeping with the movie we're discussing. Yeah. Um, I, you basically introduced me to the Oscar race. I never thought of anything, like, when I first saw the Oscars on TV, like, what are these films? And like, they must be all great films. And then when I go, I searched about the Oscars, I stumbled upon your website, like 13 years ago, I was so green. And so I knew nothing about that. And you just introduced me to this whole thing of like, Oh, there are more films aside from the nominees. Oh, and then, Oh, not all films are (laughs) not all nominees are great. Oh, and then there's so many things that are coming into play. And, the way you make your predictions, I you, you can still see them in my how I in my own personal documents, the way you have color coded for like blue, red, yellow, green before. I still have them in my records now and just like thank you, thank you really, because I started to feel less alone watching films because I knew there's someone out there talking about lots of films and not just one kind. So I wanna say thank you for that for now. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Just goes to show how old we are now. But anyway, um, can you tell our listeners where can they find you on the internet? Yes, uh, I'm at the filmexperience.net is the site. Um, and then on Twitter, I go by at Nathaniel R. There you go, our home. <laughs> so uh, let's start with this one. All right. Cinema Paradiso, I... I would admit there was a lot of nervousness when I came because a lot of the winners from the 80s, I have no idea uh, about any of them. 
which makes this podcast exciting because I'm watching films I have no idea. Like, literally. But this one has such a big reputation on its own because it's being called like, one of the greatest from Italian cinema, from world cinema. I know friends who personally love this film. It's their favorite film. A uh, huge reputation. The roosters. I can hear the roosters. But what do you think of this film? Is this your first time? It is not my first time seeing it, but um, I, I do have a little story about my first time seeing it. I did not see it when I was first out, um, but when I went to college, um, I went to college at BYU, which is like a, a Mormon school for those um, who aren't in the U.S. because um, I grew up Mormon, and so it's like a religious college. And they had this this one uh, program called International Cinema, very creative name, right? <laughs> it was just like they just showed foreign movies, and that's all they came up with for the title. But anyway, they would show foreign movies once a week at this at this at one event but they would edit them all the time so they were like foreign movies without like the racy bits right so it was hilarious to me that that's how i saw cinema paradiso because that's that happens within <laughs> the movie that they're at that there's like a priest that's like editing film so it's kind of ironic that that's the way i first saw the movie and that they that they apparently didn't have any qualms about doing that even while showing movies that were about that. Um, so I, I loved it so much. This was in the nineties and like the mid nineties when I was in college. And like, I, uh, but I, I have to admit seeing it again, it was like, I was just kind of shocked at how sentimental it was. Um, so I didn't love it as much. Um, it definitely has great moments though. Yeah. It, 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 it is a film that is unafraid to go there like in terms of sentimentality and frequently goes there in terms of like the tone it's striking. I mean, this beautiful music by Ennio Morricone just always goes there. And it is a beautiful piece of music, but at some point you kind of feel like, I don't know, maybe I'm trying to think of it in such a way that was it because it is about a man looking back at his past that there is this layer of like we're probably not seeing the raw emotions at the time but there is this um nostalgia already with it so in the context of the story there is nostalgia but at the same time i think the film itself is playing up that nostalgia re a, a lot and especially like in the ch um, childhood years um but hmm I know the term like love letter to cinema has been thrown around like a lot of times and like what does that even mean anymore? <laughs> but um, this film I think is one of those where I, I get it, it, why it's called that because it's, well, sentimentality including, there's this celebration or just like deep heartfelt appreciation of cinema and how it permeates into the lives of the film goers and uh, <laughs> that's a feeling that I miss. We all miss that feeling, but um, yeah, it really harbors on that, that emotion of awe. Yeah, I, 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 should, I should say that, you know, even though I called it overly sentimental, I do think it's a, the sentiment is appropriate in that the subject is also sentiment. Yeah. And nostalgia, like that is what it's about, is him feeling 
like this, these feelings about his youth. Um, and also watching this during the pandemic, <laughs> watching it again when I haven't been inside a movie theater <laughs> since like, I don't know, February. Um, I always year. take a break. I always take a break right after the Oscars every year. Cause I love going to the movies. Of course, I'm always at the movies, but I see so many movies around Oscar time every year that like for about three or four weeks after the Oscars, I usually, it's like the only time I don't go to the movies. Um, so I was sort of on my annual break from the movies and then I couldn't go back to the movies. So it was very upsetting. Uh, the hibernation never ended. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, the, the, I also have that thing, especially, I think especially because of how release models work, they, they really delay stuff. So like I'm in hibernation for like six months and in the last six months of the year, like, oh, I have to watch like three today. Oh, what, what, yeah. what? <laughs> exactly, yeah. But last year was different because last year was kind of different because I'm already seeing stuff as early as September with Hustlers and Ad Astra and then, well, the Goldfinch, um, that didn't happen. But, you know, it was more well distributed last in 2000, last, 2019 yeah oh my gosh i'm still in 2020 but um yeah there's this longing now that kind of affected me away and it also made me feel emotional because that communal experience that we see in the film well i usually watch films like 10 30 in the morning so there's there's no community there like i'm alone but this one i think it is conscious of what it is about and plays it up um, I'm not even sure if it goes overboard, but I think it is genuine and you're coming from a place of just like love, not just for cinema, but for the people that in, in the story, I feel this love for everything and everyone in the story that, um, and it kind of let things pass. I mean, for me at least, and it is a smooth going ride and what do you think of that framing device? Because I did not expect it to be in in that framing of like there is this old man and looking back and then that's where we see it. Yeah, I don't like I I get uh, for this particular movie that that framing device is very important because it's about memories. Um, even even in as much as like movie going and old ways of like seeing movies. I get that it's important to this movie, but I kind of always have allergic reactions to framing devices. I just hate framing devices in general. I'm just like, just tell your story. Um, so I, I was much more invested in like just seeing the memories themselves than every every time that we went back to the older um, Toto. I would just kind of like lose interest. <laughs> I wanted I wanted to see like the years he was remembering. Yeah, and what do you think and of the? Yeah. Also, I think it's a little vague about the adult Toto, right? It, like the movie's a little vague about him. Like you don't get much about what's going on in his life. Yeah, I mean there are like small details here and there. Like he is probably like he is this playboy who doesn't really know how to settle down. And uh, he's in a city while the parent, the family's in a province, kind of disconnected for a long time. Very sparse. So that's 
That's why I was thinking the framing device, of course, for me, makes sense because it's about looking back at that time period in time. But at the same time, there isn't a lot of context with the present that would give weight to it and the looking back. Because when the looking back, those moments are, like you said, I think those are the best scenes of the film when we're just in the moment being this harboring the same childlike amazement to the story but they it's not always this strong uh, mesh of the two the past and the present yeah. because the present is just functional for us to see that oh he is reminiscing not really giving yeah. us much weight um, well there's this death element but why are we going into this deep dive into the past? What is happening with him in the present, present, present that makes him think of those things from the past? It's functional, but it doesn't go deep. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so I it, because of that, I would just kind of lose my patience with it a little. And when I was looking it up, because I, I watched on uh, HBO Max is currently running it, yeah. but they have... But there's um, there's like a director's cut that's much longer, mm-hmm. um, and I was just like, well, what would that be adding to it? I'm like, maybe it would be more of the present tense. Um, but I didn't watch the longer cut. But me too. It's just like, uh, let's watch the nominated version of the yeah. story. I always, I always, <laughs> that's the way I always go. Um, but also because he's, I, I do think. It isn't just because I don't like framing devices that I think that's the weakest part of the movie. It's also because there's such a nostalgia for sort of like the loss of like cinema as like a cultural space. And yet we know from the movie that he's a filmmaker. He grows up to be a filmmaker. So in what sense do you know, they're, they, the way the story is structured, it's like movies are kind of a thing of the past, but Obviously, they aren't <laughs> because, like, just Giuseppe Tornatore is making this movie, and it's also about this guy who makes movies. You know, so it's like, in that way, it's like a little, it feels a little incomplete to me. Like, tell me about what kind of movies he makes, or, you know. But I'm, I'm sounding very critical. It is a very moving <laughs> film. Yeah. Um, I just like that part of it doesn't work for me. Like sort of the the, the middle age part doesn't work for me. Yeah, I feel more that. I mean, I only discover. I mean, this is probably to my fault. Maybe it is my fault, but I didn't know that he was a filmmaker until I read the synopsis. Oops, um, <laughs> but but well, I, that's what I'm yeah. talking about. It's it's a little vague, right? Yeah, um, very vague about him. I think, like like you said, I think just disinfecting myself right now. I think the looking back part would have been stronger if there is a contrast, a stronger contrast, like you say, um, about the cinema. Because, for example, why is there such a mournful look at cinema? I mean, the, the building itself went down. Spoiler. But... The building itself, the just reminiscent of this old way of watching films and this experience of being together. Um, I did sense that probably he was going, not really mourning the death of cinema, but more of like the community that was lost 
because when we go to the funeral scene near the end, he's kind of like everyone. Some many people are gone now. He's like grasping at straws, like not grasping at straws, but you know, meeting people, uh, looking at people that he didn't really care that much when he was younger, and then he kind of like, yes, I want to be with you and talk to you and look at you. There is this um, longing for that community that he had when he was young and like the people that experienced cinema the same way at the same time with him um but that difference between like him going to the town and like having um reignited or like triggered the emotions of that that he had in the town in the cinema in the people that he met they don't really register clearly when he is still in the city because the city version of him is kind of a blank slate that just mm-hmm. yeah. looks and like thinks of these things. That's why we don't know, oh, what is he, what kind of a person he was, was he before he went back to the town. That time in between, he left the town and he came back to the town. I'm not asking for more scenes. I really don't. But it's just <laughs> like an understanding why what's what's with him before the death? Because we started with the death of right. um they were already calling him like, Oh, someone's dead or probably. So I just don't know I wanna know him more because it is his story. And we are following him through the present. That's why it's just functional, that framing device. And I don't mind framing devices that much. Right. I mean, it's telling, right, that that um, Philip, Philip Norat, I can't say the name, Norat, no, the, the French actor who plays, like, the the projectionist, Alfredo, who's, who's the one who dies that prompts the whole plot. Um, and it's telling that he was like his prizes were for best actor because even though he's not actually the protagonist, Mm -hmm. but he's like the focus. Yeah. And he's such a, like a richer character because the protagonist is this blank slate, like you're saying. Yeah. And, um, (laughs) did, did you notice that a lot of his dialogue are don't sync? Uh, Alfredo or or the Alfredo yeah is it just the time being the time of filmmaking that I just it just popped out of me I mean I don't mind it but it's just like it he doesn't really sink at all <laughs> I didn't notice um but uh I mean he is he is a, a French actor um so I don't know, but I mean, he obviously, he made other Italian movies. So, um, and a lot of, a lot of French and Italian actors speak French and Italian. So I don't know. <laughs> the yeah. sound issue. One of the most random observations that I had and going back, like I'm now watching films from the 87, like, yes, it's a thing of the eighties where <laughs> a lot of dialogue just don't match. But anyway, um, <laughs> What it, yeah, let's expound on those scenes where he was a kid because that are think are the most powerful moments of the film, just on a deeply emotional level, and that's where the sentimentality 
works so well like yes i'm on board yes give me those heartstrings and that those strings really w what do you think of those scenes um when he was still a child and is just so full of joy in watching films well i mean i think they're obviously the strongest scenes in the movie um the the child actor's great uh, salvatore Cascio. um and like and i think the reason like sometimes child actors can be bad in movies mm -hmm. but I think the reason that this sort of like bold like emotional content of the movie works so well is because it's about a child and childlike emotions are so much more pure and and like i'm not trying to romanticize childhood but emotions are less complicated like if he feels joy and joy you know so it's not like <laughs> it's not as there's not as much weighing down the emotions, so they tend to just be whatever they are, you know? And so, like, his wonder at the cinema, for example, translates really well, and, you know, his... him being mischievous, it, it feels, like, very... Uh, I mean, it's very, like, cute, like it would be insufferable in an adult. <laughs> but, you know, all the trouble he causes... You know, I just think the childhood scenes work perfectly in this movie. Yeah, and he is um, a very, the character itself is very, I don't think it's a performance that coasts on being adorable, just being adorable, because there is an arc to this child, um, and that wonder, wonder, <laughs> that wonder, no yeah. wonder, man, the wonder that he had, it is it really rings true because you know we, we have those moments where some child performances don't feel organic you feel they're functional <laughs> but this one yeah. it's just i i don't know i props to the actor and to the director for give for letting this because if he is we're not believing his enjoyment to the cinema and every emotion that comes, we are not going to be on board with that. And that's the most crucial part because that is, that's not just objectively the film's strongest part, but it's where the film itself hinges much of its focus on that. Those years, those are crucial and crucial for the character, crucial for our emotions in the film. And it is a really strong performance by the kid. I think he got some awards. I think he did. Um, I'm not sure. I know Alfredo got some awards. Yeah. Alfredo was like uh, nominated for, uh, or he won the BAFTA actually. Um, and the Cesar, the Cesar um, also, and uh, the European film. This is the Cesar. He won for a different movie, but in the same time frame, and the European Film Awards. Uh, Alfredo, um, if Philip Philip no no right, oh, I can't think of the name. Um, he he won like one of the shared prizes for both movies, Life and Nothing But was his other was the Bertrand Bertrand Tavernier's movie. Um, so he won the shared prize for them. So he have, he was obviously having a great year, but I don't know about the the child actor. You see that I should have known, <laughs> um, but uh, I, I I'm opening it, but. 
yeah, it, it is quite a wonderful, uh, wonderful chapter in the film. And I really thought the film was just gonna stay there because it didn't. There was some. There was a point in the film where I don't. I thought we were gonna stay there forever. Oh, with and the child. With a childhood. Uh, I thought it was just gonna be him looking back at the childhood. Mm. Um, and there's some really great stuff. I think. Um, I'm looking at my favorite scenes from the film. Half of those are from the childhood years. Yeah. <laughs> And the other half are from the final chapter when he finally returns. So let's talk about the middle chapter then. What happened? That middle chapter of him being this lovelorn teenager. What do you think of that chapter? Well, I mean, I think that falls prey to all all of the tropes. I mean, like literally all of the tropes of like sort of the coming of age, like the sort of obsessive, uh, pining and then it, the weird this is very 80s with the weird thing that like stalking is romantic which is like a big thing in like 80s and 90s movies because he basically stalks the teenage version of Toto basically stalks this girl like he's always waiting outside her house um so that's it's a little creepy um so it, it falls prey to all of that um i'm much more interested in the movie when it's about the actual like titular movie theater the cinema paradiso oh stalking is not romantic anymore I'm, oh, oh gosh I'm it's sorry. not no oh no oh no i just did it last night i'm just kidding public service announcement yes Carlos. Oh my gosh. it's not romantic Real time. <laughs> Stalking is not romantic anymore. No, I mean, that's the thing. I think I think that's that middle chapter does a lot of heavy lifting with the music. Uh, the music does a lot of heavy lifting because I think the music in the in the in the chapter in the the child chapter, it just goes organically. The amazement that we see visually just goes so well with the with this beautiful score from Ennio Morricone just, but in the middle chapter where I feel like it, I don't care about his this chapter of his life I'm sorry but then that's where I felt like the music was doing like more heavy lifting which you know props to Morricone for that but um, God rest his soul but that it's not as organic anymore that I don't think the one I think the wonder wonder left and it's just more this uninteresting chapter of him being this bullied teenager with also love lorn. It uh, it also feels the most um, like it's a generic and it doesn't it's not really inspiring. Like I don't want to remember that part and the scenes with the cinema, or maybe that also because. Maybe that wonder wears off because he is getting older. Yeah. I mean, part of it is is just like the nature of that he's getting older. But also it just gets really, really hung up on his relationship with that girl, which isn't really a relationship. It's more of like a, more of a unrequited Pipe. sort of romance. Ouch. <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm here. <laughs> anyway. Um, 
Yeah, so that that chapter kind of drops it for me, but at the same time, it gives us this uh, moment of, you know, he's already starting to dream of like becoming. Uh, was he already dreaming of becoming a filmmaker then? I, I don't remember actually. He just wants to leave town. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember exactly, but but like the idea of him being a lovelorn teenager, that it totally works with the plot. It's just like less interesting because we've seen it in like a million movies, whereas you don't see a million movies about a little kid wanting to be a projectionist. You don't see a million movies about that, so that's more like inherently interesting. Um, but but the fact that he's a lovelorn teenager works well in terms of the fact that the main the main through line of the of the like edited footage of like it's always something romantic is taken out of the movie um so that works really well and and i think you need that teenager to have this sort of like romanticism uh because you know he's always denied all the romance yeah and when he was older, he has a problem with having real stable relationships with women. So I think that also kind of manifests. What I do find interesting is that he already uses his he already uses film when he was in his teenage years. He's filming again, creepy, but filming the girl and it's oh it's, yeah, right, it's right, slowly right, yeah. coming in. He's not anymore just. Maybe he was a filmmaker. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Now that now that you're saying it, because he begins to become his own storyteller at that point. Re- again, real time <laughs> thinking yeah. his things. Uh, yeah, but then um, when he is about to leave town, Alfredo tells him to not remember the town, and says, "Don't give into nostalgia." That line struck with me because the film basically gives into nostalgia but what do you think yeah. of that uh of that or maybe not what do you think of alfredo's de- demand actually to total to don't remember the sound don't come back well what i think it's think? actually one of the major strengths of the movie because the movie so is so giving into that and yet the character that we're most invested in essentially um because Toto looks up to him so much and uses him as a mentor and everything, he's the one telling us, no, it's all it's all a trick. You know, it's all an illusion. It'll hold you back to be nostalgic. So it's an interesting, like, contradiction of itself, which I think makes the movie much richer because the movie's warning you against exactly what the movie's doing. Mm-hmm. So I think I think that's a really interesting part of the movie. Do you believe in that nostalgia always holds someone back? No, but it can be a trap. Mm. Like if you get too hung up on, you know, the past, you're not living in the in the now, you know. I don't want to live in the now, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there well, are... Yeah. That's all we really have. Is I'm exhausted. <gasps> but, you know, those are these moments. And I, I do felt something. I, I felt quite an emotional investment for Alfredo's character. I think it's it's that kind of character that 
you understand and also props to the performance and how it was he was used in the story because it's the kind of character that makes sense why he has this long impact on the actual main character because it's not his story he is right. just a part of that but we see how that character was used especially in the childhood years where you you understand why he has such an impact the way he was placed in the story and that's why his death matters um you know for him and also for the story um i do want to say that i going back to the best parts of the film <laughs> which is the childhood years one of the things that i love about this film is that it it goes into it strays its focus to a random character stays with that for like 5 to 10 seconds and then we really just go away from the protagonist like it's not even the child looking at them it's just sometimes the child is just passing by and then suddenly the ca- the camera would focus on this random character for like 10 seconds like why are we looking at this person and then these are all like people from the town or like cinema patrons and then I, at first i was thinking when i was in the child section like yeah because you know probably like the film is making an emphasis of how movie film going is such a communal experience like you know we see these uh strangers really give uh, bringing down their guard once they want watch a film and it becomes this shared i love when they were crying in the scene because it's all this shared experience but it's just we don't really know these characters we just see them when they're there or like when they're clamoring to go to the cinema you know because that's the only option for entertainment but in the end it pays off when you know the last people standing when there was this funeral and then he suddenly sees these people that i'm not i don't care about this person but since this town is already strange to me and i don't know anybody here i he's like reaching out in this very quiet beautiful way and it's not anymore like cinema bringing well it is bringing in a sense of community but just in the film overall there is an appreciation to the town that alfredo is telling us well don't remember this town i love that the fact that the film goes into these lengths so that there is a po- there is this um fighting of don't remember the town but at the same time we remember a lot about the town was it, this this is was set in world war 2 right was it or no 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 or pre pre world war 2 um Yeah, I'm fuzzy on the years. Um because it <laughs> takes place over such a long it takes yeah. place over such a long period of time because it literally goes from childhood to middle age. So My favorite uh, I want to say one of my favorite scenes is when since we're talking about favorite scenes is when they invent the drive-in. <laughs> when they decide to like project the movie onto the oh! wall like in the building. <laughs> I I love that moment um because like everybody gets so excited because they want the cinema to stay open and that uh, that's one of the purest moments in the movie. I think it ends in tragedy because that's 
fire happens. But but um, I it's a really fun scene, and it's also I'm like, oh wow, they invented the driving in Italy <laughs> before drive-ins and six existed. That's you know talking about magic of film, and I think the film is exploring that. That is one of those moments where I'm like, all right, you have me. I am surrendering to the magic of this film. Yeah. And of course, they put this makeshift speaker and I'm like, yes, this is 2020 right here. But then I just, hmm, I have some qualms with that scene because I think that scene is already very loaded because, you know, it started with people clamoring. And then they project it to the to the to outdoors beautiful it's an it's, it's it's a beautiful escalation i don't know if the fire should have been in the same scene it's a nit it's a writing nitpick that i think just the scene itself is already so loaded yeah no i i can see what you're saying yeah yeah because it is such a purely joyful moment that the fact that it also leads to the tragedy is kind of yeah, like you have to ruin this one. I'm no, and I just remember that because when I was in film school and I was you know writing my film, and I remember a friend of mine telling me, "Well, you have two major plot points in the scene. Move one out because you're probably gonna dilute the other one, the impact of the other one." So I would have probably seen wanted to see the fire in another sequence, like maybe a few sequences later. <laughs> this is very nitpicky, but yeah, that. I just love that moment. I think that's where I just give up and just like, if this film is gonna be this good, this is, mm-hmm, you know, <laughs> I, I love it. But um, I do want to say that I also loved how they were doing the censorship with the with the the, the priest. It it also goes to show how how ironic it is, you know, in in Italy. Um, it's a bad rock of cinema. The, the church's presence is very strong. It's there. It's from there. And then you have this uh, push and pull between the conservative and the film, which is not. And then at some point, you know, we just, the, the cinema paradiso just turns into this den of masturbation and prostitution and murder and I'm like yes <laughs> like sure I mean I haven't anyway uh I haven't witnessed any of those I'm you know but I I, I loved what do you think of that contrast between the the cinema paradiso and the nuovo cinema paradiso the with a new investor new cinema but then oh uh, I mean I think that's a good part of the movie just because it, it like part of the movie's thesis is that times change. So that's what Alfredo's point of like, don't get too nostalgic. Like you have to move on. Um, so I like that contrast. Um, and also, you know, maybe cause I'm anti-censorship in general, like the priest thing is funny to me. But since I grew up with it, and like as I was telling the the college experience of like going to a place where they were always editing movies, like you know, I feel like <laughs> it's better to just let people be people, you know, than try to 
then try to control them. Do they also have bells in your jersey? <laughs> no, but but they did uh, this very popular thing when I when I that year when I was in college um, was that they would have these like family newsletters or whatever where every movie or it was in the newspaper I think I don't I don't remember exactly the context but they would literally every single movie they would do a huge list of everything offensive in it so it, we used to always make fun of it um, because it was like you're they they are noticing they're way more invested in nudity than like normal moviegoers you know they'll like tell you in these guides that they used to publish exactly what angle of nudity you're seeing like partial side view like like, like explicit detail of what was in movies so that you could decide whether or not it was too much for you or too much for your children or whatever but like it i mean it was almost like you know when people get too repressed and it comes out in weird ways that was that experience. So you would you could read those things and be like, oh, this movie has lots of sex. I want to see it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if I had that list, I'm like, let's search YouTube scene. <laughs> <laughs> well, this I... was before you. This was before YouTube, of course. But... Oh no! What yeah. did did? Oh yeah, they cut it. Um, I remember that because I also grew up in a Catholic school, which is weird because I'm not Catholic, but I just love that school. Um, and they definitely don't show a lot of stuff, like a lot of films because of that. Kind of understandable. They're doing their part. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, I was this sneaky little bitch who sneaked into Silence of the Lambs and showed it to my classmates and like, you know, Anthony Hopkins with the skin and the blood. I'm like, yes, the teacher's not here. So I'm showing you guys this, <laughs> this bad person. And then I, luckily, you know, in, in my own home, because I don't remember being censored at all in the choices of films that I watch. I mean, probably wrong because I was seeing, you know, really inappropriate things as young. And I was like, when my mom would say, oh, why is, why are you watching this film? Because when he comes into my room, there's a sex scene. I'm like, well, it won an Oscar. And, um, <laughs> that's a good excuse and uh you know i read it on this website and i would refer to your website it, i heard it's a great one so like uh, okay sure so even if in the in the cover shows like restricted for adults like all right watch shakespeare in love and just like watch all the sex scenes by that yourself. Is like, funny because i those excuses did not work for me i was i was not allowed to see so many things growing up they see an oscar statue yes watch it it's great, and what what you know we we'll watch it, and like when there's a sex scene, like not watching. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pure. I'm not watching. That so did not that did not work in my house. Like we were not allowed to see so many things. Yeah, but now we're watching everything, and um, like I said to you, we're gonna watch Betty Blue in a few weeks. <laughs> so like, woo! I know, and I said, be prepared. You'll be shocked that Oscar nominated it. It's a and, good one though. And I would say, oh, what are they doing? Wow. <laughs> no idea. Uh, but yeah, I, I did love that. But at the same time, I was thinking of, I don't know if the film was establishing lack of censorship to the innocence inside the cinema and then lack of censorship and then all these events happening to the masturbation and prostitution and murder or is it just with the times? 
I'm not sure how it goes because when we first see those things happening inside a new cinema Chino Paradiso, they were already showing the uncensored version. So I don't know if the film was tying, you know, the effect of what is being shown to how the audience is acting more openly because people are masturbating then. People are going to prostitutes then. They were killing people then. But that openness, if they're feeling liberated to do those things because of the lack of censorship and the quote-unquote lack of morality that they see in films. Like, a lot of conservative people like kind of argue with that. You know, they're already projecting the result, the, the effects of... Well, this you know, is, yeah. I mean, this is the, you know, the chicken and egg argument, right? <laughs> And so, like, if you're a conservative, you're going to say it's because that people saw these things that they, their morals were shaken. But then the other argument is like, no, this is always, people have always been interested in, you know, sex or violence or what have you. And this is just like the movie just caught up with how humanity really is once, yeah. once the censorship was over. It, it's a cycle of like, you know, art imitating life, imitating art. And, um, but, but it doesn't really end like it doesn't always move in one direction either yeah. like sometimes like the 60s and 70s like if you watch those movies are so much more risque than movies now and the 80s even way more risque than today's movies what happened <laughs> I'm sure many books could be written we don't have the time for it in one podcast <laughs> <laughs> what happened um yeah and um, I, but anyway, being a non-American and seeing conservative commentary and, you know, always playing that, uh, playing that argument of like, oh, it's Hollywood's fault <laughs> why we have these things. Yeah. And yeah. then I do remember like there is this mass shooting in, I think in Las Vegas, I think. And I think one congressman said, well, drag racists have corrupted our morality like what is the problem why are we connecting mass shootings to drag races it's just you know that kind of commentary which is like you know <sighs> well that's just that's just crazy people it's with reaching an yeah that's just crazy people with an agenda because they're the same ones who made all the laws so that people could carry firearms around you know so yeah they just don't want to take responsibility. But that's a whole other whole other discussion. Yeah. <laughs> I want to also say that um, the film has a lot of violence towards children and it is for comedic effect, which I didn't think I know. Is this the 80s just being the 80s or what do you think of those scenes? Because it's quite a lot of those. What? Like him getting spanked or things? And even or... the classroom, like teacher hitting a lot of <laughs> violence towards children in a light manner. Uh, I mean, I think it's just the time, right? It's yeah. like different morals, different, you know. Yeah. Oh, violence against children is bad. I didn't. Know. Oh my gosh. <laughs> no, but I mean, even if you just think about something like spanking, right? There's been decades where that was commonly accepted in decades where people are like, that's the most horrible thing you could do to a child. I mean, like art is never made in a vacuum. Right. Yeah. So like art reflects the morality of the time. Yeah. And I was watching this film, like, you know, like kind of shocked. Oh, what's happening? And my mom's like, yeah. 
I mean, I've been that, you know, hit by a stick with a teacher. Like, <laughs> yeah, that happens. I'm like, oh, I'm learning so much. And I feel like I'm still in the 80s in my mind. Um, but are there any other scenes that you want to, or performances, or like, no, let's go with scenes or anything? No, I, I mentioned everything I wanted to mention, actually. Yeah. Um, like I said, you, I love that scene where they were censoring the kissing scenes it's because it's so absurd. But at the same time, it happens. And then I love the, how they build up to the first screening that we see in a film just because there's much build up to it and we see kind of the magic of it all and then how it just gets better. And then I also love how Alfredo teaches Toto how to do the projection. Kind of gave up on this kid like, you know, okay, I'm going to teach you projection and I'm going to teach you something else. Um... I did like that scene where they were running the film rolls. Oh. Um, did that ever happen in the United States? That kind of like system of playing films? Or do you ever have enough film rolls that like, that doesn't happen? <laughs> I That scene, I have to admit, totally confused me. Like, I don't know if it was the editing or that there wasn't like a beginning, middle, and end to that scene, but it, it just confused me what was even going on. I... Love that scene because that used to happen here in my country. Um, oh, yeah. It's not as rough as that. I mean, I was I was calling them that. That is so stupid. I mean, you play two films at once. I mean, because that happens here. I mean, in the in the Philippines, we have this... I don't know. I don't think there's an English translation even. But there are these runners who would, for example, play the film at 9 p.m. And let's go with 4 p.m. 4 p.m. And then another cinema would start playing the same film at 5 p.m. Or like 5.30, 5.30. And then what would happen is that film roll plays at 4 p.m. here. When it finishes at 5 p.m., this person on a bike would carry the film roll, go to the cinema, the other cinema to play at 5.30. We know the second roll is already playing. And then the first roll would play at 5.30 in the first cinema. And then the person would go back to the first cinema get the second film roll when it ends, go back to the second cinema. So that, I mean, that experience is like, yeah, <laughs> I love seeing I those mean, moments. I never worked in a movie theater, so like, I don't know, but I assume that's more of like a rural situation. Like, I grew up in... A third world situation. <laughs> no, no, a rural. Yeah. Rural, like not third world. Um, So like, I grew up in Detroit. So like, I... I movie theaters would not have booked something if they didn't have the reels. You know what I'm saying? Like, so I don't, yeah, I didn't understand that scene. Yeah. But this is Italy in the forties and Philippines in the two thousands. is doing the same thing. <laughs> come on guys. That's not screens. I like it's in the film distributors part because like, come on, don't book when you don't have the roles. But I will say I've had that experience as late as 2019 because I went to the cinema to watch green book and it was it wasn't playing there so anyway they were trying to save you they were trying no. to save you i went to a cinema which is like one and a half hour i went to the cinema and i thought oh the green book is the green book ehd the hard drive because they have the dcp there like it's not here yet and i'm like well what time was it coming blah 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 blah, blah. and I'm like i'm not wasting time so I asked my friend, can you search for me like the next Green Book screening here in my province? Like, oh, this one. All right. So I, I took a bus, traveled one and a half hours through this 
city in top of a mountain, watched Green Book, kind of loved it. <laughs> so it was a weird time because like, why am I here in this tourist spot just watching Green Book? I had <laughs> because of this problem with they don't have the film. Um, I would say that I think the film, like I said, loved the childhood part, kind of drops it in a teenage part. I think it rebounds quite well <clears throat> when Toto finally comes home because there are a lot of reckoning there and it's not, I think that's when the film kind of pulls back, like, you know, with a sentimentality a bit, it's more kind of confronting with more rawer emotions. Like when um, you see the f funeral and then the cinema is demolished and then it goes inside and there's these ruins. Of course, there's this still nostalgia playing, but it's not, it's so tempered that I love like, oh, you know, there's a certain maturity that this character and also the film had in confronting these moments. And I'm like, I wish the film was this good or the childhood part because the film, you know, it kind of feel, it feel bad when you know the film is kind of rebounding, kind of picking up a lower parts but the this the chapter where he finally comes home i think those are the scenes where i was really teary-eyed because like those are the more nostalgia kind of stripped more tangible emotions i mean the the only thing i had remembered about the movie from seeing it because i saw it, i don't know 90 i don't know in the mid 90s i saw it um and the only thing I remembered was the, the film roll when, you know, the film roll of all the edited scenes that he watched. Cause I remember when I had first seen it thinking it was like the most incredible movie. And I think because of what I'm saying, all the, like the connections between seeing it in a movie theater that regularly um, cut out sexual scenes. Um, and so I, to me, that was like a, an amazing amazing sort of um, culmination of everything the movie was doing. So I love the ending. Yeah, I did love the ending, though I was thinking probably I was spoiled because this film is, the, the ending itself is very well known. That I think I saw it beforehand without the context of it. And I thought, yeah, great music. <laughs> and these kissing like what's happening why is he crying with seeing these scenes and then when I found a film like I I was thinking like I probably had much impact on me my voice is fading I'm sorry much impact on me if I went in blindly without knowing anything because that is such a a callback to everything it's such a long planting of yeah. it's such mm -hmm. a huge payoff and the film knows it's a payoff. And it's the very final moment of the film. And it's beautiful. I mean, the movie's not subtle. It's not. <laughs> but in that... But yeah, it, 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 it's definitely milking that moment for everything it's worth. But it... You know, it's kind of... It, it's very... You know, not claiming that they're influenced by him. But it's similar in the way Spielberg works for people. Like, he totally gets how to manipulate your emotions and really like goes for it when he's doing it. So it, in some ways it's very sort of obvious, but it yeah. still works on a primal level. 
Yeah, that's too blasphemous to say with Spielberg, but that's one of my holdbacks to Spielberg is that you kind of see what he's doing. Right. But there are just certain moments, like, I don't know. I The last time I felt him just loosen up, weirdly, I don't know if it would be the post, but, but there are moments in the post where I'll also know, like, I know what he's doing. Uh, right. Certainly, Bridge of Spies and War Horse, I felt, you know, the said the said milking of emotions, like yeah, yeah, yeah. John Williams is like oh, <laughs> milking this, like. But listen, sometimes you earn the sometimes you earn the milking, yeah. and in this case, in Cinema Paradiso, they're they're earning it. Yeah, it is a very well earned moment, and uh, I just wish we could go back to cinema soon. Yes. Yeah. That the the seeing it again, just after such a long time of not being in the movie theaters was that was kind of rough emotional. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is, and the whole because watching something yeah. on your TV just not. I have a really big TV, and it's still just not the same. How big is your TV? <laughs> well, I TV. haven't measured it. I haven't measured it, but the point is, like, it's as big. Like, there's there's a couple. I mean, people always talk about like. New York's the best place to see movies because we have so many movie theaters. But we have a lot of movie theaters that have tiny, tiny screens. So people outside of New York assume everything's like, you know, movie palaces or whatever. But it's not like that. Like the art houses in New York, a lot of them are similar to art houses in in small cities or where, you know, that's the smaller screens because there's less audience for them than the mainstream movies, you know. What's the last film you saw in the cinemas? Um, Bennett. <laughs> no, it was Emma. <laughs> Emma. Yeah. Ah, uh-huh. yeah. Mine was The Invisible Man, but um, it was um, it was in a mall. I mean, in the Philippines, we have a mall thing. We rarely have cinemas in outside of malls, which yeah. kind of it actually does. It's a it's a problem in terms of programming. It's so commercially inclined like you see independent films being pulled like for example if, if it has 12 30 2 30 4 30 6 30 8 30 screenings it's being pulled at the 2 30 screening like filmmakers oh, no. i fighting for the day they go to cinemas please let our film play today because it's all marvel and dc and romantic comedies that's yeah. why this year is like, eh, <laughs> got nothing. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't realize growing up how good I had it because even though, you know, it was like, well, I mean, the movies in, in the 80s were different. Like, people would actually go to movies that weren't, like, action, you know? <laughs> like, I, I'm always trying to tell people, like, you know, like, Terms of Endearment, for example. I was just like, thinking that. I was, ugh. That that was literally a blockbuster literally like hundreds of you know people people were obsessed with it and like the other biggest hit that year was return of the jedi which now people will understand because that's all the only type of thing people go to in huge numbers but in the 80s people would go to dramedies like terms of endearment in those numbers so like so like but i also didn't understand how easy i had it because i grew up in the suburbs of detroit so there were art house theaters so like i could see the foreign films or whatever and like my parents even though they're not movie people 
because they're religious, they liked old movies because they're safer. So they would take us to see old movies. Hey, because, because we had revival houses because it's a city, you know? So like we would go to like, see like, you know, old musicals or whatever at a movie theater. So like, I just didn't realize like, and now of course, New York's great or it was before the pandemic. It was great for stuff like that. Cause you have repertory houses, you have, but you know, I realize are, it's not everybody's experience. Are they still open now? Cinema we don't, houses in our movie theaters are not open now. Uh, um, yeah, that's one of the things that I kind of feel weird. Like, for example, when a friend would tell me um, in 2019, for example, oh, we watched um, we watched uh, A New Hope in the cinemas. It was great. Like, what? Because we don't have those revivals here. Not mm. at all. Um, here, it's just you're lucky if you get to see this film because it will only play once, and then you have to go to a university for a screening of something. Uh, it's usually it. for free, and then um, we don't get a lot of things. We didn't even get Moonlight here in the cinemas, so had to find ways to watch it. But um, that's I, a bummer. Yeah, and no, the, oh, okay. yeah. Yeah, like I, I went to, like for my birthday a couple years ago, I went to, um, there's a, a repertory house here, um, the Metrograph, which is great. Like I took the film experience team to see uh, Desperately Seeking Susan because um, they were showing it. Um, and then for my birthday a couple years ago, I went, I, I took uh, friends to see uh, Monkey Business with Cary Grant. Cause, and it was showing on the big screen because like it's a beautiful repertory house, you know. Um, yeah. But that's New York City. Um, so you like if you live in big cities that are film loving cities, it's you know easier to have experiences like that. So so yeah so so cinema parody. So basically, it even though it warns you not to be nostalgic, <laughs> at the same time it makes you feel really nostalgic. And so I was like remembering all these movie, movie theater experiences. It doubles down on that emotion a yeah. lot of times, but you know it's the um, magic of cinema parody. Attento, abracadabra, guardo dall'olcia parte. Before I continue with the episode, I would like to take this opportunity to quickly talk about his new website called The Star Draft. And with me is one of the site's founders, Brian Taylor. Hi, Brian. How are you doing? Hi, Juan. I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Great. So I would let the listeners hear it straight from you. What is The Star Draft? So The Star Draft is a website that's a little bit like fantasy football meets Hollywood awards season where we would give assigned point values to nominations and award shows and draft a team of celebrities. And now we've turned it into a website where over the course of Hollywood award season, we have users draft teams of celebrities 
and then these celebrities earn nominations and awards and therefore earn your team points. So yeah, so users can now head to www.thestardraft.com to draft their own team of actors and musicians. So you can actually go to our website and draft a team of Meryl Streep, Olivia Coleman, Carrie Mulligan, and all of your favorite actors, basically. Yeah, so I already have an account. I want to know where to begin. Like, how does it work and how can I play? Well, first off, you'll have to join a league. Star Draft gameplay is broken down into leagues. Everyone's got to be in a league. So either you can create your own league and invite friends to play with you, or you can join a public league. And then once you're in a league, you either set a draft time or you find a league that has a convenient draft time for you. Um, so every team gets a chance to draft any celebrity they want. But once the celebrity is drafted, no one else in the league can draft them. And then, yeah, so you draft a team of 10 celebrities in three categories, TV, film, and music. And then once you have your team, before each award show or nomination, you set the lineup. Any, any uh, celebrity that's been active in your lineup, if they earn a nomination or an award, your team gets points. You said film, music, and TV. Film and TV, yes, got those. Music, I'm lost. What if I don't know who to draft? What we do is we produce a series of rankings, of celebrity rankings, sort of do the heavy lifting for you. We, we have a the system that takes in um, gold derby odds and betting market odds, and as well as some some of our own prog uh, prognostication. And we come up with a list for you. So you can just draft an entire team based on our list. You can find it at thestardraft.com. And when does the season start? So points start rolling in with the Critics' Choice nominations on January 18th, and those are just the TV nominations. And so that's technically when the season begins. I should mention that one other thing about the startup, besides your leagues, is that we have a site-wide leaderboard where all the top scoring teams in their respective star draft leagues will be ranked on our leaderboard. So you'll also be playing against people you don't know. And then the top team on the leaderboard at the end of Oscar night, which happens in April this year, will take home a cash prize. There you go. So please visit thestardraft.com to make this award season even more exciting. Uh, thanks for joining, Brian. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And it's a labor of love for, for everyone to play. All right, so now let's go back to the episode. All right, so let's talk about how Cinema Paradiso won. Uh, it premiered in Italy on November 17, 1988. The first cut was 155 minutes, but then it bombed. They cut it down to 124. The international version was the one that w was eligible for Academy Awards, and that won. And then it premiered at Cannes, where it won Grand Prix. Uh, it landed in Toronto September 12, and it screened in New York in February 2, 1990. This was Italy's 8th win and 22nd nomination. It won Golden Globe. was nominated for DGA in the 1990. <laughs> and then it won 5 BAFTAs in 1990. Um, it won Best Film Not in the English Language, Best Actor for Philippe Noiret, Best Actor in a Supporting Role for Salvatore Cascio, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Film Music. Box office wise, it grossed like eleven point nine, no, twelve million, twelve million dollars in domestic box office. 
Mm, do you remember the Oscars at the time? Um, I said from Michelle. <laughs> I, this is yeah, it's a painful memory for Old me. So I try not to think. I try not to think of that uh, Oscar ceremony. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't. I don't. I. I no comment. <laughs> just, just fell apart after I asked that question. No, uh, but do you remember this? What were you already like following this category then, or not really? Um, I like my Oscar. The very first Oscars I ever watched was uh the nineteen eighty three Oscars, um, for terms of endearment, and um, I didn't really understand what was going on but i was like really into it um, so but it was like kind of a gradual thing so like the very first race that i was paying attention to in terms of like what magazines and things were talking about and like tv shows like cisco Niebert or whatever was like 85 so it took me a while to like rev up you know um but then by by 1990 i was uh 89 90 i guess i was seeing like the very first foreign film i think i saw was like 86 or something which, which um, one is, is it betty blue no no oh we, i like in terms of nominees what was the very first one anyway it was like around this time i i was starting to watch things but i hadn't but not everything like i wasn't that it was more like 1992 where i was watching everything mm-hmm yeah um, so yeah, I hadn't seen so like the only thing the only one of these that I had seen um was before we were doing this. Well, I had seen Chinaba Paradiso, but like a lot long time later in the nineties. I think the only one that I had seen was Jesus of Montreal. Wow. Um yeah, I also did had the same thing, you know. The first time I saw the Oscars was in two thousand seven. I wasn't really watching non-filipino films at a time i was very patriotic yeah. <laughs> but um and i thought i couldn't understand english films because you know they speak english too fast and i'm like that's a stupid reason for me and then for some reason i woke up one morning getting up at dawn and there's a sense of possibility no it's kidding it's not the hours but uh, i woke up one morning and it was the oscars was playing on a tv and you know, best makeup. I remember Lavian Rose winning it and like best costume design. And like, what are these best things? And, you know, I was starting to become this film person. And like, what are these? And then, you know, the electricity went out. <laughs> and I didn't see who won in the other categories. But then the following year, I was already followed. The first time I really followed was in 2008. That's when I stumbled into the film experience. It's the film experience of blogspot.com. And you <laughs> had this tables of like what is in the running and then but the first time i tried to watch everything was 2009 with expanded ballot so that year is just special to me even with the blind side <laughs> best picture um yeah so that's my relationship also with the oscars let's go with the other nominees uh the other nominees that year were camille claudel from france jesus of montreal from canada Waltzinger gets it from Denmark and what happened to Santiago and Puerto Rico. Where do you want to start? 
Uh, let's do the big one, Camille Claudel. All right, that, that's a big one. Camille Claudel premier, uh, premiered in Berlin where it won Best Actress for Isabella Gianni. It was Golden Globe nominated in top five foreign films of National Board of Review. Also nominated for Best Actress Isabella Gianni. It is about Camille Claudel, a sculptor who kind of falls in this relationship with... Um, I forgot the name, but it's Gerard Depardieu. Hold on. And then it becomes this consuming relationship on her end that suddenly, that slowly saw her break down as an artist and as a person. Basically, it's hard to summarize a three-hour film. Uh, What do you think of Camille Claudel? This is your first time, right? It is my first time, which is kind of a shock because, like, I love French cinema. And so, like, the very first foreign language movie I ever saw in my life was French and um, I took French in high school and so like our teacher was always taking us to French movies and encouraging it so like I, I I was really into French actresses and French cinema before I was into like global cinema um, so I'm shocked that I never had seen this because I love Isabelle Angenie, um and I loved it <laughs> it was kind of like very big like I didn't understand how that it was three hours long like thankfully i did not check the running time before i pressed play (laughs) but i was totally into it i mean it's it is like a biopic in all the ways that you can be a biopic you know um but i was really into it maybe because like i love movies about women losing their grip it's one of my favorite subgenres and I love Isabelle Angenie and I love French movies. So I was, it was, it was really for me. <laughs> yeah. Love seeing women on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Yes. Uh, but um, I, I agree. I mean, this, there are some runtime things here. The original version was in 19, uh, was 1975, 175 minutes. And that was the one that was released in France. So we're assuming that's the one that qualified for the Oscars. But then when it was released in the United States, it was 157. But since it was nominated for Best Actress, I, I asked this question, like, uh, in a previous conversation, did the Academy, what version did they see? Because um, the foreign language film would go with the, the version from their home country, but the Best Actress would go with the version that they saw in the United States. And... Um, it's a huge difference, I, like 20 minutes. I mean, it's very possible that they saw both versions because it's different groups. Yeah. Like, you have to be... Or, or back then, you would have to be... Like, they've, they've changed the voting a lot since then, but back then, you would have had to be on the sort of volunteer committee that was watching the foreign films. So it's possible they had two versions. the two different versions. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't actually know the answer to that question, but I saw the three-hour version. And that that the version that we I think saw is like two minutes shorter from the original version, but it's still a bigger gap than yeah. the one hundred fifty seven. Um, the film is big, and uh, and the performance is big, yeah. um, which I love. <laughs> I will say that I think the first one and a half hours were really strong, and for for some weird reason. 
the moment it went to her breakdown, which is, you know, delicious to see for, for a Johnny, that's when I started to lose interest in the film. Huh. Interesting. Uh, is it different with you? Yeah. Okay. No, just <laughs> is it the like, flip? I, yeah, it's the flip for me. Um, because, like, I think the movie is more sure of what it's doing in the first half, but in the second half, it gives Ajani all all the juice, you know, to really go for it, and also one of the things that I didn't like about it, um, but I don't really think it's a critique or I, I don't think it's a bad thing about the movie. It's just me as an American. Camille, Camille Claudel is obviously so much more famous in, in French, like sort of myth that I think they were taking a lot for granted that we already understood about the story. Um, because even though it's three hours long, they're very vague on the details of what's going on. With these art, with these artists and their apprentices, and like the art scene, and how people cheated her, and you know, because so it, like I didn't really under a lot of times I was just taking her word for it, and I realized <laughs> she's an unreliable character because she's losing her grip. Um, but I also didn't really understand the sort of economics of what was going on, which was it, which was something that the movie kept harping on. But I didn't, I had trouble following it. Um, so I'm sure if you were French, there's enough, like she's probably so much more part of the sort of cultural conversation. Because I think there was, there, like this is one of the rare biopics where afterwards I've like gone immediately to the internet and tried to learn more about the person. Because usually with biopics, like, they tell you too much or they're like greatest hits or whatever. And you're like, Oh my God, I never want to hear about this person again. Because <laughs> you know? biopics tend to be so boring, but with her, I just wanted to understand more. And there's been other, you know, films about her. Now I really want to see the Juliette Binoche version, um, which is apparently later in her life when she's in the mental institution. Um, so anyway, I, I thought it was a really interesting movie. Like, maybe not entirely cohesive. <laughs> um, I kind of view it as like, there's this scene where Rodan is, gets this inspiration and he sort of, sort of clumsily shoves two like sort of plaster of Paris statues mm. together. And it's like inspiring this famous sculpture of his. And it's basically the scene is visually, because there's not really any dialogue in the scene. Visually, it's basically telling you that how much he was inspired by her work because she was the one who came up with the pose of half of the sculpture. Um, and then he places them together and it's obviously like a man and a woman statue like smushed together. And there's something so beautiful about the scene and clumsy at the same time. And I, to me that, that sort of was the film, <laughs> that scene. Um, because it, it was very much about Rodan and Claudel's relationship. Yeah, I, I love that how the film has this like and a film experience why a film experience why and a film experience <laughs> plug plug <laughs> plug plug <laughs> ding ding uh, on a film experience level 
you know, I would, you would, so one would want more cohesion in terms of narrative if we're, if we are wired to follow plots, but at the same yeah. time, the abandon that the narrative has and just letting, just following these characters, especially Camille, um, that I found really interesting because it commits to that, that, um, just follow them and, you know, the ups and downs and, you know, I don't think, I think the truth of the, of the matter is somewhere between Camille's and Camille's, um, insanity and the people around her. I think the truth is somewhere in between. Right. But I love that we never, I never really found, well, is she, is her feelings, are her feelings validated? Or is she just paranoid that everyone else is thinking? Because there are layers of that, of like her being a female artist at the time. And like, you know, she's, when people don't understand her, she is mad or going insane. She's, she's a crazy mm-hmm. bitch. But then at the same time, you really see her fall apart. And that, I really love Johnny's work in that, especially, I think it's very well set up her performance is that's why when she explodes and breaks down like yeah girl let go because i i just <laughs> got it and i i it, it was a long time coming there's a lot of pressure there's a lot of mistrust and um you know i that character haunted me that performance haunted me and um yeah the film is the film is its own thing. Like it doesn't try to make a more uh, strictly plotted journey. Like here's right. Camille Claudel. We'll stay with her, and this is her journey. Wherever we go with this one, we're sticking with this. Mm-hmm. And uh, what do you think of her performance? I mean, I am a huge Ajani fan, so. I keep hoping she'll have some sort of comeback or not. I mean, not that Uber ever went away, but I keep hoping she'll have a mainstream success in the way that Isabel Huppert did with Elle recently. Um, not that Elle is mainstream, but you know what I'm saying? Um, where it's like, uh, because, you know, Isabel Angelini, she had two Oscar nominations within, you know, like 12 years or so. So like, she was obviously well-liked for a time, um, and I think she's such a great actor, um, and she's so specifically great at playing sort of women who aren't, who sort of are living in their own reality. Um, and yeah, I, I loved her performance. Um, I, I was surprised at how sort of sneaky the performance is because she seems mm-hmm. so like, she seems so sane yeah (laughs) and totally like sure of herself and like she comes across as like such she she plays it as such like a driven uh like artist but not in any way to give you a sense that she's gonna lose her grip which so she wasn't telegraphing which i really liked about it and then you see this other side by the end of the movie where you're like wow she's like lost her grip lost her career you know, hasn't lost her talent, but has also squandered it in a way because she's self-sabotaging. 
but you know maybe some of what she felt was true like she probably was exploited you know and the more i read about her after seeing the movie the more i was like oh a lot of these things are still up for debate which is why she's such a fascinating character in art history because some people feel she wasn't insane she was being exploited by everyone left and right and not like they were getting rich off her work and not her um, but I thought the movie was just so vague about all this stuff that I had no choice but then to just go by her performance. Which was kind of a performance about someone losing their mind. Oh, was was she going insane? Um, that was me last week. <laughs> no, that was me last week. You related is what you're saying. You yeah, related. when she carries a torch and just screaming like, that's me when I went to the mall <laughs> carrying a torch. <laughs> anyway. Um, that performance is just epic, and I think I think this is my first Isabella Gianni performance that I saw. Uh, I really oh, you have so many you have so many treats in store. Yeah, I'm like um, looking forward to the story of Adelaide and possession, and yeah. Um, yeah, this isn't even her best performance, so you have lots of treats. I've heard story. that word. <laughs> I've heard that comment <laughs> uh, <laughs> around. Uh, so now, have having seen her, have you seen all the best actress nominees that year? Uh, yes. I'm not even gonna ask who your pick is because I mean you know who my pick yeah is. like everyone in whoever is known of my existence knows who my pick is yeah Michelle uh, Pfeiffer yeah. which I um, haven't seen yet and I'm gonna hide now because... <laughs> <laughs> um yeah I mean I I think it's one of the great travesties that she didn't win for that but um but I did love Isabelle Angenie. Um. yeah I think Michelle has I think she will have one somewhere down the line like if not for French exit I, because her work she never really went away but her work especially like in the independent projects are very interesting and I'm like there's gotta be something there that just clicks and uh, well, the problem is that she doesn't work consistently. That's the whole problem. If she was someone who worked every year like Amy Adams, she would end up with an Oscar. Oh, so Not that Amy do you Adams concede has, that Amy like, Adams you know would Billy Elegy? <laughs> no. no, but you know what I'm saying. Like, yeah. it's, it's all about momentum. And like, you can't, you have to have momentum unless you luck out and have a specific project that hits at the exact right moment. Yeah. Like, you know, like Renee. 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 <laughs> yeah. the same thing. Yeah. 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 Renee leaves and then just comes back and then gets her Oscar and then like I'm I'm gonna break, take a break again. <laughs> I'm just yeah. gonna come back for my third. <laughs> so watch out for that. Yeah, um, I mean, some, yeah. Some people seem to do it so easily, and other people you have to play it exactly by all the rule books, like the momentum yeah. and the round tables. Multiple, yeah, the multiple performances before they decide. Okay, it's your time. All that stuff. Yeah, it's never the thing, but yeah. Uh, the second one that you've seen is Jesus of Montreal from Canada. It won a jury prize at Cannes. It was Golden Globe nominated, BAFTA nominee in the 1990 and top foreign films of NBR that year. It's about... <clears throat> it's about a, a, the parish, I think, in Canada who uh, enlists this actor who... To... Actor, right? Actor? His actor to... Uh, revitalized, give a modern spin, like, or just living up this interpretation of the passion of Christ because um, 
Yeah. And then, you know, he hires this group of actors and artists. And, you know, I think the church ultimately kind of regretted what they asked for. Um, <laughs> this film you've seen before. Um, I know you loved it. What do you think of it now? I mean, I, I still completely love it. It was just, uh, it was different than I remembered. I mean, I saw it when I was much younger. Um, so, like, I think I thought it was, like, super profound at the time. Um, and so this time, what I really liked about it was its sense of humor and that it's, that the profundity was kind of, like, a young person's profundity, like, it's very sort of blunt in its metaphors and like, it's not subtle, like, like Chinema Paradiso, it's not subtle <laughs> um, about what it's doing. Um, but in this, like, I, I just think it's such a fun movie and, and, and so interesting because it, it's like a movie about ideas, but it's also like really fun. Um, and it's also about the act of creation and, and I like that he gathers this troop of artists and they just create something together, which causes them all sorts of problems. But then you have all these, all these ideas within the movie about how artists feel about their own work and their own careers, um, which is something totally apart from the passions because there's all this religious idea. There's all this like ideas about religion in it, but then you have this whole other movie that's about how, artists navigate careers and what they feel about their art so i i, I love it yeah i i came into this film not knowing what would it, what would what would it be about i mean i just know jesus in montreal like is this gonna be something i don't i i had no idea what it's going to be about and when i first saw like it's gonna be about religion i'm like yes i like films about religion like not not religious films like films about religion yes but then it becomes this very <laughs> my go-to word is layered because they are performing inside a film and there are layers within that performance and there is this commentary on religion and performance which you know when you see a film about that and the film is knowingly about that too I just love how it works in so many layers and um, I think it's really sharp in what is in its commentary. I mean, I don't know what the commentaries are. They felt sharp. So, uh, yeah. And then I, I, I just love how, because this is Denis Akon. I did not love the barbarian invasions. Uh, did you? I did at the time, but I, it was one of those movies where, I don't. I literally don't remember a thing about it, and it made my top ten list that year because I looked back, and I, I literally don't remember a thing about it. So I'm not. I'm not sure it should have been on my top ten list. And I've heard a lot of people don't like it. Um, this podcast. <laughs> no, no. I. I mean, I've heard other people say yeah. it's bad or whatever. And so, like, but the fact that I have no memory of it whatsoever, and every other movie. Top my ten. top list around that time frame, the the years before and after that year, I remember pretty vividly. So like, I don't know what that's about, but I this movie, I had, it was different than I had remembered it, but I remembered enough about it that I was like, oh yeah, this is why I loved it then, and I still completely love it. Yeah, and I love that I saw this because 
now I have a film from Denis Arcona. You know what? Yeah, I am not against this, the work of this director anymore. Now, not that I like having vitriol with directors. Ugh, you know, it's too much energy well, to have vitriol. And Oscar loves him too. Like three of his four submissions were nominated. I'm trying to remember what was the one that was not nominated. Is it the? Anyway, I should have remembered that. Uh. The. No, it's. Oh gosh. Is it 2007, right? Yeah, it was. The necessities of life. Um, yeah, I don't. Think so, but it was it did make the finalist list. It almost got yeah. That was a year of uh, four months, three weeks, two days, and and uh, Persepolis not making it the short list. Why am I searching it now? No, 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 no. Uh, tempted tension span, but yeah, I just I love this film, and I. It is funny. It is disturbing at times because of you know the institutions at play and it understands that very well and you know that you know there are real stakes here even if they're just actors performing and i loved how it really reached that climax and that ending it became this i don't know are we suspending disbelief or am i just like surrendering to myself to the film already but i loved the directions it went um those are the times when I love being surprised because sometimes when you watch a film, like, you know, this is my type. But this one, I I had a dinner and then, you know, I didn't know what it would be about. And then I'm just surprised. Like, oh, my gosh. I do love this film. Um, the pleasures of doing this podcast. <laughs> Discovering <laughs> things you would not yeah. watch. I mean, I the one thing I had not remembered about it at all was how much it was about how actors feel about themselves. Um. So there's this great through line that I had not, I had no memory of whatsoever is that it opens with this actor who is not part of the main cast. Yeah. Um, uh, this performance by this very sort of sexy actor. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he's not in the rest of the movie. And like, and he, he has some well-wishers like talking to him after his performance. And he totally is rude to them. He's like, oh, wait, I see a good actor. And he just sort of walks away from them. And so he, he goes over to the lead of Jesus in Montreal, um, Lothair Bluto, who you've probably seen in other movies, because um, he's, you know, he's been in some other things after this. Um, and so so he's the, and it turns out he's the star of the movie. But then the other guy comes back into it in interesting ways. Like you see him on a billboard yeah. with a sort of like trashy, like, he just become a sellout, you know. Yeah. He obviously cares about art because he's like really into this other actor who he thinks is super talented. Um, but then you see him in sort of like a I don't know if it's like a perfume ad or yeah, yeah, yeah. like. Um, and then he comes to the performance that the whole movie's been about, and you see him for like a split second. And he seems very pissed off, and it's you can tell it's because he's jealous because he's not doing work that that that's challenging like that. So like it has all these like ideas about artists and stuff in addition to being having really like pointed conversations about faith and you know people's ideologies about religion. Um, so yeah, I was super super into it. But I did want to say since we're talking, we're all these memories of movies that I was the first time I saw it, I was like 
still very Mormon and repressed, you know. And so I, I remember being, I was, I remember being like very uh, guilty that there was this naked Jesus that I was so into because it was like, because he's he's fully naked in the movie. Like when they do the passions, like they, you know, usually when you see depictions of Christ on the cross, he's like wearing a loincloth or whatever. But in Jesus of Montreal, he's just naked and they put him up on the cross or whatever. And I remember being like horrified that I was like, really mm. into it. is it really horrified or? <laughs> no, hor- no horrified, horrified that I, that I wasn't, that I was really into looking at it is what I'm saying. It's not horrified, it's horn. <laughs> You're like, it starts with that syllable. It's horn. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I just love that. I think, I think we've done like a few Zoom calls before, and you're just admitting your kinks like casually in our conversations, like you have naked Jesus, and then anyway. No, that's not a kink of mine. I'm just saying, at the time, it's not a kink of mine. I'm not moving on. Moving (laughs) (laughs) Moving on. (laughs) It's super not a kink. It's just like when you're young and gay, and like you're not out yet, you like get embarrassed about things that you Nathaniel, find. you don't have to explain yourself. We are a safe space here. <laughs> You're good. <laughs> but, oh, I also want to say, for anybody who, like, there's so many movies now that try to do the 80s, right? Oh, yeah. Like, 80s nostalgia is, like, a big thing or whatever. And, well, I guess now people are moving on to 90s nostalgia, but, like, um, this movie is, if you ever want to see the 80s on screen, this movie is a great example. It's so 80s from start to finish. Like, the music, the clothes, the yeah. hairdo, everything is completely 80s. And some of the jokes that, the, oh, that's very 80s, okay. Yeah. <laughs> the, that This thing, like, oh, no, that's very 80s, come on. Oh, yes, yeah. Uh, but Oh, I, I had forgotten about that, yes. It's a very, like, one-second shot, and I'm like, shit, like, but you see, I, I love when it's not, not that period films are pretending to be, not. but I just love it when I see films from really from that time period and they still work to yeah, this yeah. moment. Like the same way, I don't know how you feel about it, but I haven't read your thoughts on it. But I, that's one of the things that I love about Working Girl is that so 80s, yeah. everything, the music, the hair, everything, the references, Kevin Spacey in a supporting role, Alec Baldwin in a supporting role, Melanie Griffith yeah. in the lead role. It's very 80s, but yes, you know, give me that. And I just feel bad that you mentioned that 90s now or like the nostalgia. Like, I was born in the 90s. So, like, are we, are you looking at me like some old memory now? Oh my gosh. You know, it's just like yeah. a cycle of like life. But I do also want to add that um, I loved that how. Jesus of Montreal really commits its time to the performance of the passion a lot yeah. of times. I think, you know, we talk about Chino Paparadiso kind of dropping the ball in the middle somewhere. Jesus of Montreal, I think that's its best moment when it kind of throws us. I mean, you know the you know what the actors are going through, you know, when they're performing, but at the same time, it really kind of stops and witness this moment that this creation that they made and it's still 
works in the context of the story, but you know, it's a performance and I love how it went in that far, that direction, because it kind of shows the confidence in the writing, in the structure of like, you know what, we, this is not like a roadblock. This is part of the story and it is a chapter of its own that is so confidently made. Love it. <laughs> and, uh, and the, yeah. the, the last act would not work if, if that middle wasn't so rich. Yeah. Because, because you, you have to understand why they're so passionate about continuing to perform yeah. it. And how transgressive it is with the yeah. uh, with a conservative institution, and I also yeah. love the discussions about like, is there just one way um, with faith? Like there's ways to deal with faith. Like the the institution doesn't own faith, you yeah. know that layer. And um, I just want to add like that actor in the first scene. I'm like, wait, he's not the lead. Let's go back to him. Let, let's let's go back to him and then he appears like in the billboard like right he he was the there were conversations like he's not gonna do the ad you know he won't sell out and then when the lead actor is like in the lowest low lowest or like in his most jesusy he didn't see his billboard i'm like oh gosh it's another <laughs> nail in the coffin and he falls apart um really it's an unexpected not not because of anything but i just love that this film isn't really that much talked about now. The same way that Camilo de la Cinema Paradiso is. Yeah, it was hard. It was it was un unfortunately a little difficult <clears throat> to find, which is like Easy. not good. <laughs> no, it should no. be it should be widely available. Yeah, that's one of the things that I feel like I think Oscar nominees, and I think especially this category, this is my bias, should really be preserved. Yes, and if. Time comes that they're now in public domain, or I don't know. <laughs> they should be tried to make it as available as possible to more people. 100%. Yeah. That's one of the things the Academy should be focused on, and they don't seem to think about it, that part either. Yeah, I, I don't know how the museum's going to roll out now in the time of pandemic, but uh, anyway. Um, talking about access to films, <laughs> the other two films that I saw were not that easy to find. Uh, just going to go through them quickly. Um, Walsing Regitsi from Denmark and What Happened to Santiago in Puerto Rico. They didn't get any precursors. <laughs> so like, this is one of those delights of the earlier years where just, a film just comes out of nowhere. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> it's only released in their country, huh? And then gets nominated. Um, Walsing Regitsi, it's about a couple who has this um outdoor lunch and then suddenly the not, not suddenly I, I like using the word suddenly it's not even sudden in the course of the outdoor lunch the husband thinks of their marriage from the moment they met to the moment they become who they are which is like an old couple i read it and i read some things online that says it's a danish classic and I thought that interesting because it is actually a very simple story of that couple. But I would like to mention the editing because it just, it's another thing, framing device, Nathaniel. Like coming back and forth, past and present, but this one does it so well. And by the end, it makes a lot of sense why it goes back and forth. I don't know. It's, I'm delighted to see this. And then what happened to Santiago from Puerto Rico? 
Um, first and only nomination from Puerto Rico because since 2011 they are barred from <laughs> submitting. What do you think of that? Well, I, I think that's ridiculous. Unless they're granted, they don't, they should, <laughs> I have lots of feelings about Puerto Rico, but I think it's ridiculous the way that they're disenfranchised from being American, even though they are American. So since they're disenfranchised, like let them have their submission to the Oscar. It's not like, yes, they're part of, they're citizens of the U.S., but since you don't recognize them in so many ways, then let them have their Oscar submissions. Yeah, that's also one thing that confuses me because the they're, they're, they're American citizens, the Puerto Ricans. Yeah. Yeah. But they're not one of the 50 states. Right, no, see, this is the whole issue. It's like, that's why it's ridiculous that they don't aren't allowed to compete in this category because in so many ways, they don't have, rep- you know, it's like, they don't have represent proper representation. That's why you have like all these like racist. I mean, one of the re- racism is its own its own issue entirely. But you know these, you have so many Americans who are like, oh, you know, you know, acting like they aren't citizens, but they are. Yeah. But they should be a they should be a state so that they have the same you know rights and representation as as all the other. Yeah. places in america but in the grander scheme of things this is one of their lesser problems <laughs> because of yeah, how, yeah. yeah. No, uh, again yeah. yeah it's totally like the oscar this whole matter. oscar thing <laughs> it doesn't but i'm just saying it's ridiculous to like disenfranchise them from something like art yeah, yeah. and they have their own industry of film so yeah and they have their identity and if they're not there is somewhere that they exist somewhere in the middle of like your american citizens but you know, it's it's really a weird thing that, and also I think this also applies in other territories, United States, maybe Guam. Like they're not really a state. I don't know how mm. the politics work, and I probably mm-hmm. shouldn't delve that. Anyway, going back to the film, <laughs> uh, the film is about an old man who uh, helps his uh, divorced, is it divorced or separated? Yeah, divorced daughter with her grandchild. And then, you know, he likes taking walks in the parks and something like that. And then he meets this woman, his age. So that's good. And then they suddenly have this, um, again, suddenly. Come on, Carlos, you can do better than suddenly. Um, This relationship that is very, they like meeting, but the woman is very secretive of her life. And then the man starts to remember things in his life and it just this reflection on old age. I I really liked it for what it is. I think it's a very simple story, but there is honesty in it. And I, I confessed it to you, confessed it to you, um, that when I was watching it, am I really disinterested because of the story or me just because of the rarity of it, but of it being a Puerto Rican nominee, but... I remember the filmmaker being one of those like great directors from Puerto Rico. Like they see him as a very humanist director, and this one I see it. He there is this uh, empathy for its lead actor, and there are some things here and there aesthetically that it's doing. It's not anything that's breaking ground, but I love it when we get nominations like this, just because 
very simple stories and um, they do it well and it kept me guessing until the end and that's one of the strengths of the film is that I don't know if I was just not paying that much attention but it's a film that it's it, when it it lays out its setup you think it's one thing and by the end it's not that but for this quiet drama it's just so engaging that Usually, unpredictability is not the strength of this kind of drama. But I love that it kept me predicting until the end. Anyway, so that's hard to find. Uh, you can just find... I, I think I saw a version that was recorded from TV. So talk about access. And again, preserve, film preservation, please. Especially the... Film roles. <laughs> Talking about film roles in this uh, podcast. Uh, let's go to the submissions. There were 37 uh, submissions times three. That's our submissions for this year. <laughs> no. First timers are Burkina Faso and South Africa. None were disqualified. Um, let's hear what you saw. What did you see? Um, I Unfortunately, I only had time for the three we discussed and I also saw the uh, Hong Kong entry, uh, Painted Faces. Yeah, Painted Faces from Hong Kong. Uh, it's about uh, Master Yu, who is a teacher at the Beijing Opera School. So I haven't seen it. You did. What did you think of it? Um, I liked it. It's very, it's actually a kind of a great double feature with uh, Chinama Paradiso because it's very similar in that it's about this older figure who sort of inspires these children to be to what their art is going to become. So it's like these, these kids are in this like opera school and they're basically learning to be um, acrobats to perform on stage. Um, and there's a lot of like uh, more, more child abuses comedy oh <laughs> as we were talking about <laughs> earlier. Um, this movie also has that, um, but it's an actual true story which I didn't really realize until the end where they did the thing that tells you what happened to the characters after the movie. Um, and it's also about sort of like an art form that is suddenly not the same uh, because they're, they're, they enroll in the school as little children for like 10, it's like a 10 year program. And then by the time that they're ready to graduate, the school is going to be demolished and nobody's going to the Peking Opera anymore and they all have to try to find other careers. So this thing they studied to become is, and you sort of get that sense through the movie because you see the audiences like being super small or like nobody in the audience. Um, and so it just keeps getting worse for them. And so like toward the end of the movie, the, the lead guy is trying to decide do I close down the school? And then the choice is made for him, basically. Um, but it's very similar to Chinema Paradiso in that way. Um, and it has that same sort of like nostalgic pull and people pursuing their art. Um, I liked it, but it's, it, it's very, I could totally see why it wasn't nominated because it's also not European. Like there's a lot of like, things that are very Asian cinema about it. <laughs> and, you know, as we've, as you've discovered doing this podcast, I'm sure the Academy is much more into European cinema than Asian cinema. Um, and yeah, 
but I think it's worth seeing. It's on Netflix. So it's one of these, uh, surprisingly, every once in a while, Netflix will randomly have something made before the year 1995, but it's just pretty rare that they do. Um, so I was like so shocked to discover that they had this, that I watched it. Um, and it won a bunch of awards in, in, uh, at the time, um, in Asian cinema awards, not, not Western awards. Um, and then the one, the one I really wanted to get to was uh, my 20th century by Ildiko Enyedi. Um, because that was like a big hit at the festivals um, and considered, I believe it was considered a snub at the time for the nomination. Um, and that filmmaker, a female filmmaker, um, she was nominated much, much later on for On Body and Soul just a few years ago. Which I really loved. Which I loved, right. Yeah. So I really wanted to see this early film of hers, which was apparently a big hit at Cannes and yeah. was submitted, but they didn't nominate. Yeah, from Hungary and uh, in the uncertain regards section. It's about uh, twin sisters reunited through a mysterious traveler. Yeah, I really wanted to watch more. Um, I only saw two submissions. <clears throat> well, first one was The Seventh Continent from Austria. It won Bronze Leopard in Locarno. And it's Mikael Annika's feature film debut. It's about a family that um, commits suicide. It is... So a Michael Haneke plot. <laughs> yes. It is a very painstakingly stoic film that just goes into very dark territories by the end. You already see him, you know, his lang Michael Haneke's language of not showing everything and letting you piece things together or maybe not even not even letting you piece things together you know some that language that he has you already start to see it here and i love that he took on such um such a such an out there concept because it is how do you pull this off um, when you know, when we talk about film, like you know, motivation and plotting and writing and structure, this is a family that just commits suicide for seemingly no reason, and it's a true story. So, I love what he did here. I don't think I say I love what he did here. I don't think I love the film. <laughs> it's really tough for me to love his works. Uh, this one especially because it just was cold blooded. In the best possible way. <laughs> uh, and then I love that you mentioned in our conversations before, like Yaba from Burkina Faso. It won for Presquiet Can. Uh, it was about it's a Yaba, it's a, it's about a young boy who befriends an old woman who is ostracized in their village. This one I really deeply loved. It is a really beautifully it's a simple but beautiful story of kind of like outcasts slowly coming together. The filmmaking here is just pure and you would say kind of raw even in terms of like technical, but I appreciate that it's simplicity. It's also its strength because everything's clear and it's all set up and the characters are all interesting. And I wish I could say more, 
because I've seen it a few weeks ago. <laughs> but I really was pleasantly surprised and I'm glad you brought it up in our emails because when I discovered it, like it's such a discovery. And when I was watching, it made me think like, you know what? I should like make an African cinema retrospective on this podcast just to see that cinema that's in there. And this category has really lacked African cinema representation. <laughs> and, you know, talk about like Ivory Coast winning with a French director and Algeria winning for a Greek director <laughs> and all that. I mean, it's just also interesting that we were talking about uh, Painted Faces that is before the 90s, you only see like Japan as the yeah. Asian nominee. And then suddenly in the first half of the 90s, you get China and Hong Kong and Vietnam and Taiwan. It's like... And then nothing again. Nothing again. <laughs> like even in the best of Asian cinema being submitted because, you know, submission is another monster in itself. Yeah. That's why I really love the second half of the third season because like, yes, I'm seeing myself. Asians, woo! <laughs> love it. And uh, anyway... I'm like you said, the next seasons are gonna be like, except for Japanese cinema, really gonna be so European. So, yeah. I'm bracing myself for more like white energy. Uh, <laughs> You're I gonna get more and more that. World War Two as well. Oh, oh my gosh! Every year I see the swastika and I'm like, can I get a break? <laughs> I always see a swastika here and I'm like. My heart, <laughs> I already know. <laughs> this is, you know, I do. You know, I covered the this race extensively at the film experience, and I, I was shocked when I was doing the research on this year and preparing all the articles that this is the least amount of fil- films ever submitted about World War II. There's only two. There's only two, in in all ninety three that are about World War II. Ah, oh, and none of them were nominated, right? <laughs> oh, we, we have we don't know the nominations yet. Ah, uh, this year. Ah, uh, this, this year. No, this year. I thought eighty nine. I'm like, oh. No, 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 no. No, like this year, like the Auschwitz report. And yeah, and um, Dara in Jasenovic. Yeah. Oh. They're and they're both specifically they both specifically take place in concentration camps, so they're very like. Uh, zeroed in on the holocaust as well so like it's it but it's very like um it's just pretty rare because it used to be like nazis here nazis there nazis everywhere but i guess it's just a matter of like you know the further we get away from world war ii and like there's lots more films about terrorism every year um and uh, we're living (laughs) yeah and we're living in very interesting times (laughs) um yeah. Like there is a film about neo Nazis this year. Is it um, the German? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I mean, it's just an interesting thing about this year. Like, and we do have like this year has a lot more African submissions. So you're talking about the re- underrepresentation of African cinema. Um, so who knows? Who knows what the nominees will be like this year? Yeah, and their recent changes. We'll see how that goes. Uh, you, you've written that in the website and I also just love your your coverage in the website about the foreign language film category just read them once in a while I'm going to brush up because I think you know when you go to Wikipedia the ultimate source of information um, it's easy to see these titles just as titles 
But when you start to read things about them and you see posters and you see the people behind them, it makes it more the engagement in this category is just like, yeah, these are not just 93 titles. Yeah. There's so many entries on Wikipedia about so many movies from this category's history that the entire Wikipedia Wikipedia entry will be like title from country was submitted for the Oscars and that's all the yeah. information that's there. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes even winners I mean, I encountered it with character, the winner from 1997 like yeah. there's nothing. It won. What? <laughs> and then I understood when it watched it. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I um, actually saw that one in theaters. Oh my gosh. Yeah. OG. Um and then the other submission, I really wanted to see A City of Sadness. I made time for that. It won Golden Lion in Venice. It was directed by Hu Shaoxian. It's about a family drama set during the Kuomintang government that will take over China. You see, East Asian politics is tricky. So wartime. Let's go with wartime. Um, it stars uh, Tony Leung. I heard so much wonderful things about this. This is I think I heard one of the best Taiwanese films ever. Um, early Tony Leung also. Really felt bad because it was in my schedule. And the film did not play. And I could not wait for the film to play anymore. So I just skipped it. <laughs> you know. That's... Anyway. Uh, Time of the Gypsies from Yugoslavia. It won Best Director at Cannes. It's about a teenager forced to join a gypsy gang. Don't Let Them Shoot the Kite from Turkey. It's about a five-year-old boy who stays with mother and makes friends with a young woman in prison. Uh, oh, oops, oops. Sorry. And then, all right. La Amiga from Argentina. It premiered in Berlin. It stars Lee Volman, queen of this category. Uh, it's about a couple whose eldest son disappeared. And then The Sacrament from Belgium, it premiered in Cannes. It's a comedy. It's about a 1950s family gathering that goes off the rails when a homosexual gets depressed. Not the first time I heard that. (laughs) Ahuf here, ahuf there from Czechoslovakia. It's about two friends who decided to have sex. And they both had AIDS, but they don't know who got it first. Spider's Web. Uh, And that thing for me was remarkable because, you know, this was in the 80s. I mean, you could tell me about the 80s, but, uh, you know, in the, in the middle of the, of when, all right, I don't, the AIDS crisis is really at its peak. I mean, it's still going bad, but, you know, there I think there was a time when people don't know yet entirely this animal, which is HIV AIDS. And, um, like, for example, Longtime Companion being, like, one of the first films to be about that and got nominated for an Oscar. And, like, a few years later, Tom Hanks becoming such a, like a landmark for representation of this disease. I don't know. I feel like it, I just had to notice it when a film about this crisis, you know, in the moment and it gets submitted. Is there anything? I didn't know that that's what that one was about. Oh gosh. The, yeah. When you That's another one that, that Wikipedia. Wikipedia. Title, no even poster. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes you go to IMDb and sometimes in the IMDb it's like, the summary is the review, and I'm like, <laughs> I don't need your opinion. I want to hear what the story is about. <laughs> and then this one you mentioned in our conversation, Spider Web from Germany, it premiered in Cannes. It stars Ulrich Mühe, uh, star of The Lives of Others, Klaus Maria Brandauer, Oscar nominee, and Armin Mühe Stahl, Oscar nominee, 
post-World War One last entry of West Germany because the Berlin Wall fell down and the following year they were submitted as a unified Germany. Landscapes in the Mist from Greece, Silver Line from Venice, European Film Association, EFA. Best film is about two children on the road to Germany to find their father. Uh, Parinda from India is a highlight of Hindi cinema for introducing. One of the first ones to introduce realism is about a man who takes revenge on the gang that killed his friend. One of Us from Israel, Palestinian guerrillas who break into an Israeli camp. Yikes. And then Rikyu from Japan, it won Best Director in Berlin. Berlin? Oh my gosh, I'm falling apart. And then it's directed by Hiroshi Tishigahara, who was nominated for Best Director for Woman in the Dunes. Uh, it's about a 16th century tea master, said Rikyu. Polonaise from Netherlands is about a couple getting married whose exes are in the wedding. And then there's this mom who has memories of concentration camp. Whew. And then a handful of time from Norway. It's about an old man hearing the voice of his wife who he left to die in a mountain while giving birth to their child. <laughs> Just getting exhausted like getting through that sentence. And then Kornblumina from Poland won... Bronze Leopard and Locarno. This one, I saw it online, but it has no subtitles. It's about a musician who fights for his survival in Auschwitz by playing music. And then The Cannibals from Portugal, from Cannes, directed by Manuel Oliveira. It's an absurdist opera about the characters in Portuguese high society. Portugal, Portugal, never been nominated. Who between Portugal and Philippines would get a nomination first? Um, I wonder every year. Yeah, two piece. <laughs> I bet it's going to be Portugal anyway. So, um, those... I, I did notice when you invited me to do this year, I was like, there's no Philippine submission this year. Because we suck. No, it's because we, I don't know. I would say <clears throat> that the best years of Philippine cinema, those were the years where we didn't submit anything. <laughs> like, <laughs> what is going on? Like, when I look at the films that we released in the 80s, I'm sorry, but... I know those films and quality wise, just saying, mic drop. <laughs> but, you know, that was a type of dictatorship. And even in the 89, I think the best shot we had at being, submitting something was Macho Dancer. I uh, premiered in Toronto. It's great in the Philippines in January. It's about, um, we'll talk about that in the 88, but um, it's about uh, a provincial guy a guy from the province who was left by his american lover wow surprise and then he goes to manila to work for his family and then he enters into macho dancing and prostitution and i have actually seen this movie all right nathaniel let's hear it come on you've been holding it back all right let's hear it when did you see it what do you think of it i i mean i remember liking it but uh I don't remember very well, but I saw it in the late 90s, I think. I think I rented it or something. Do you remember what made you decide to rent it? <laughs> no, I'm not Is it the poster? About... <laughs> 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 I've already walked into it. I've already walked into it talking about Naked Jesus. I don't think we need to go there, but let's just say it's a gay movie. So that's why I rented it. All right, let's go with that. Okay, sure. Um, yeah, I haven't seen it, and I, I know it's like a late classic from the director, Linda Broca, but 
there was some a lot of uh, pushback from it because it criticizes the dictatorship and the current government at the time. And it's about, you know, we, we're we not going to submit films about macho dancers. Um, <laughs> but anyway, those who pay with their lives from Romania. I just love that you're already a macho dancer. Anyway, <laughs> those who pay with their lives from Romania. It's about a journalist who kills himself after reading his father's biography. Mapansula from South Africa. It permitted Unser to regard in can it's about a gangster during the apartheid and the woman on the roof from sweden uh starting selling scars guard scars guard uh pre-world war one I, I saw the poster quote unquote the most sensual and compelling swedish film since persona so we're throwing away fanny alexander all those compelling swedish films and this is the most compelling swedish film since persona that's what i know so I really wish I saw more, but uh, time yeah. is just limited, and we only have twenty four hours in a day. <laughs> Ooh. All right. So the other films that were that in that year, uh, these two would be eligible to be submitted in eighty eight, but they premiered in the United States in eighty nine, so they would qualify for regular regular categories. Story of Women from France and Chocolat from France. Story of Women did well, you know, 88 Best Actress for Isabella Luper in Venice, Golden Globe nomination, Los Angeles from Critics Win, National Board of Review Win, New York from Critics Win. What happened? And then directed by Claude Chabrol, starring Isabella Luper, it's about a woman who performs abortions in Nazi-occupied France and was guillotined. Have you seen this one? I have not, but obviously what happened was France can only submit one movie. Yeah, that And rule. they chose Camille Claudel. <laughs> yeah. I only saw the second half of it mm-hmm. because I came late to our screening in the university and then suddenly Isabella Bear is having fun and then a few minutes later she was guillotined and I'm like, what is happening? <laughs> and then Chocolat from France from Claire Denis. Yeah. yeah. Not the Julia Binoche version. And uh, then Ariel from Finland, it won National Society of Film Critics in 1990, directed by Kika Ismaki. I'm just going to read the IMDb summary because I gave up summarizing it. A Finnish man goes to the city to find a job after the mine where... Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh. I didn't know what was moving in the screen. I guess I was looking at the PowerPoint and suddenly there's something moving on the screen. It, it's his cat. Lovely. Surprised. The cat, the cat about... climbed on my lap as we were talking. Oh. He's into foreign stories. Hi. Uh, it's about a Finnish man who goes to the city to find a job after the mine where he worked is closed and his father commits suicide. And then I tried to see, I tried to watch Black Rain from Japan. It premiered in Cannes, directed by Shoei Mamura. It's about the aftermath of the Hiroshima bombing. And then talk about the film that tied with Cinema Paradiso for Jury Prize in Cannes to Beautiful for You from France. It's about a car dealer who falls in love with a secretary and then the dark night of the soul from spain it premiered in berlin directed by carlos saura it's about saint john of the cross in solitary confinement i put it here because carlos saura seems to be like a spanish favorite for submissions and he was nominated three times so it made sense like why was he scared? and this was a period film so you know and then crystal or ash fire or wind as long as it's love from Italy, premiered in Venice, directed by Lina Wertmüller, the first 
women director to be nominated and for best director. It's about a journalist who pretends to have AIDS to investigate about the said crisis. And then what time is it from Italy? It won Best Actor in Venice. It's in a tie. Directed by Hector Escola. It stars Machado Mastroianni and Massimo Troisi. It's about... You know Italy would have submitted that if they could submit two films. Yeah, and they would have gotten two nominations. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's about a lawyer who visits his son and there are conflicting lifestyles and, uh, and all that. Oh, great. So there's one last. All right, so we've been talking about what is a film, what is not. This year uh, was when Decalogue dropped by Krzysztof Kieslowski. Ten television drama films, each one based on the Ten Commandments. Decalogue 6, which is a short, short film about love, was submitted in last previous year, 88. And then a short film about killing, one can. Have you seen the entirety of the Decalogue? Not the entire, but I've seen some of them. Great. I should finish. Yeah. Great stuff. Great stuff. But is it one film or is it ten films? <laughs> it's a collection. It's a collection films. of films, you know. It's a it's an anthology. Hi, that's one of the weird things of this year. I, I didn't. I mean, I I was already expecting that in twenty twenty. Like, oh, we're probably gonna be talking about like TV films are eligible. You know, in in, in that kind of thing. I was and I wrote a piece on that, like about how it is, the 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 delineation has been blurry and it just became so freaking blurrier this year. And I did not expect, and I was already predicting that, you know, maybe films from small acts would be being mentioned for best film or whatever. I did not know that we're going to have actually award-giving bodies mention small acts as one film. So, and I remember Decalogue and I'm like, I'm going to mention that. So. <laughs> I don't approve. <laughs> I just yeah. think on record. I think you have to choose. Are you one film or are you... Or are you multiple films? Yeah. I don't know. Well, I, actually, I should say, what I don't approve of is people trying to have it both ways. It's fine if you are if you decide you're one film and you're super long. Or if you're five or ten films. But I don't think you can be both at the same time. Yeah. And that's going to happen with War and Peace in 68. It's actually four films uh, released in different time periods. But for some reason, they were eligible as one film for the Oscars. But... I'll wait for the 60s to dish on that. Um, just starting in the 80s, not going to the 60s. All right. So uh, after all has been said and done, do you think Cinema Paradisa deserved it to win? No. <laughs> That's such a hard no. <laughs> I, well, it's just because I, I mean, I get why, like, of course it won. And it's beautiful and fun and, like, moving. But I, my heart belongs elsewhere. To Naked Jesus. Okay. Um, <laughs> and Macho Dancers, for the matter. Um, I actually don't know why it wasn't released earlier to make it for eligibility in 89. It would have been a Best Picture nominee. Was it already the time where they lifted the rule where they... Because there was a time when foreign language films cannot be nominated for a picture. No, they... Yeah, no, they can be. They could for a long, long time because, like, 
Grand Illusion was nominated in the 30s for Best Picture. They started something in the 70s, and it and that's why you see like Fanny Alexander missing. I I saw it. No, Fanny Alexander was because it was uh like that. The controversy around that one was because it was a TV thing. I saw the rules, and they said foreign language films. Anyway, Cries and Whispers was nominated in the 70s. Sorry for Best Picture. Cries and Whispers was nominated in the 70s for Best Picture. Yeah, I think it happened 75 or 76, that rule change. And I don't know when it was lifted. But, yeah, it. if my mind understood it right, it's a really weird rule. Um, I would have predicted this to get cinematography nominations or score. Yeah. Yeah. Because that score is an all-timer. I mean, anyway. So, uh, in as much as I think this film has... This film has... This film has some of my most favorite moments of this lineup. And I don't mind it winning. I understand why it won. So let's go with that. I don't mind it. Um, my number five and my number four. My number five is what happened to Santiago, and my number four is waltzing with really Gitse. What would be your ranking of the three that you saw? Um, I'm gonna sound so like heartless, and I don't mean to be, but my number three would be Cinema Paradiso. Mm-hmm. I really like it. <laughs> you don't have to defend to... yourself. <laughs> um. <laughs> But it would be in my number three. Mm-hmm. And what would be your number three? My number three would be Camille Claudel. What's your number two and number one? My number two would be Camille Claudel. Uh, of course. Jesus and Jesus from Montreal is my number one. Yeah, my number two is Gino Paradiso, and my number one is also Jesus of Montreal. I loved it. I had a great time. And... um. Yeah. So, Daniel, thank you so much for joining me in this episode. Thank you so much for um, feeling safe in sharing your kinks in this episode. <laughs> but um, all kidding aside, thank, thank you, you so much. Not okay. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for joining me. And can you tell again, the listeners where can they find you on the internet? At uh, thefilmexperience.net or on Twitter at Nathaniel R. Yeah, and you can find me on Twitter at Carlos Ohana and this podcast at One Inch Barrier. This podcast is everywhere. Trailer for the bonus episodes drops on Sunday. So watch out for that. And again, that's on Patreon. So again, I'm wishing you all well. This is a goodbye for now. And together, let us break the one-inch barrier.